thank you for those of you who are here. Thank you for those of you who are on Zoom. Uh, since it is after 7 here, we do want to get started. Um, as always, we just want to spend some time praying, uh, commit this time to the Lord, and trust that the Lord is really going to speak to us. So, Heavenly Father, of course, we just want to thank you so much for uh, your willingness to reveal yourself to us, to speak to us, to help us to better understand you, uh, to help us, Lord God, draw closer to you through your word. Um, we are so grateful for this opportunity that you have been giving us to consider the return of your son, Jesus Christ. And what an incredibly glorious and powerful and just assuring hope that we have that one day Jesus will come. And we just want to continue to live with that expectation and with that longing um, to see your return, Lord Jesus. And Father, we realize that so much of what you tell us about the return of your Son is absolutely clear. Um, there's no real uh, discussion or disagreement, and, and so grateful to you for that. But as we found last time we were together, there are some aspects of the return of your Son that the believing church is in disagreement on. And we just thank you, Father, that we can choose to uh, love you and to love one another and to recognize that we may not resolve every issue uh, before that glorious day. So as we continue to explore different aspects of what will happen when your son returns and the nature of that return, we just ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us a, a real desire to just really understand what your word says. We know, Lord God, that your word is perfect, that your word is inspired, that you have revealed truth to us exactly the way you want to. There is nothing wrong with how you have revealed your truth to us. So help us always just to be good students of your word, to be diligent in our studies, to do everything we can to understand rightly what you have put in front of us. And finally, Father, as we often pray, I just want to ask that you would send your spirit, that your spirit would be here in our midst, that he would help us in all that we are endeavoring to do tonight, that he would be our teacher, that he would be our interpreter, that he would be the one that is leading and guiding and directing our time together, because he is the spirit of truth, and he is the one that wants to lead us into all truth. And so may each one of us just open ourselves up to your working in us through your Holy Spirit and allow him really to be the one that is teaching and sharing and instructing. And we ask all of this, Jesus, in your name alone and for your glory alone. Amen. Amen. Well, just to, to quickly review, when we were here a couple of weeks ago, we were specifically talking about the nature of the second coming of Christ. And we have been specifically looking at the question, is the return of Jesus Christ in two parts or in one part? And what we had said is that most of us have grown up in the church or heard throughout most of our Christian life that the return of Jesus Christ is a two-part event, that there is an initial return of Christ where he comes partway to earth, 
where all of the believers on the earth at that time are raptured up or taken up to meet him in the air, and then Jesus and those believers return to heaven. And that may be for a period of seven years. It may be a period of three and a half years. Again, the folks who adhere to a two-part return of Jesus have a lot of more minor differences amongst them. And then after that period of time, Jesus comes again, and this time he comes all the way to earth. And usually how that is understood, then at that point, he sets up the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign on earth for a thousand years. So most of us, that is what we have grown up being exposed to. And, and as we said, you know, we are not here to pick a fight. We are not here to disparage our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not here to try to win an argument. You know, what, what I want to do more than anything else is just to consider the possibility, is the New Testament actually leaning more towards seeing the return of Jesus Christ as a single event? Rather than seeing it as a two-part event, where Jesus comes part of the way, raptures the church, then returns to heaven for a period of time, then a second coming where he comes all the way to earth, is it possible to see that the New Testament may actually be leading us in the direction of seeing the return of Jesus Christ as a single event? And again, if at the end of our discussion you are convinced that it's a two-part return, I'm not going to love you any less, I'm not going to argue with you, I'm not going to try to convince you, because that's not the point. The point for all of us, I am convinced, is that we want to do everything we can to understand Scripture as best as we can. We don't just want to say that this is what Scripture says without doing everything we can to thoroughly evaluate what does Scripture actually say about these things. Now, of course, we all have a major problem, which is we're familiar with Christian truth, we're familiar with Christian teaching. It's almost impossible for us not to read in what we already believe to be true into the passages of Scripture that we read. Now, fortunately, most of the time, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, because of the incredible grace that God gives us, you know, what we are reading into the text is what God himself has put in us which is a great thing. So in other words, when we see the phrase that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, a lot of what we understand by that statement is actually exactly what the Bible means when it declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because so much of that is what God has put in us in that understanding. But sometimes that can work against us, because sometimes what we are actually doing is reading what we already believe into a passage of Scripture, when maybe the scripture is saying something a little bit different. So all that I am encouraging us to consider is, is it possible to see that the New Testament might be actually looking at the return of Jesus Christ as a single or one-part event rather than a two-part event? And so over the last couple of times, what we have been looking at is some of the things that sort of lean that way. So we talked about the specific New Testament vocabulary for describing the return of Jesus Christ. And we saw that there is nothing unique about any of the words that the New Testament uses to make a distinction between the two parts of the return of Jesus that those who adhere to this follow. 
Um, we also saw that there is nothing as far as we read in the New Testament that clearly indicates that believers are not going to suffer, that they will be rescued up by Jesus into heaven before folks suffer on earth. We said that, no, the New Testament seems to pretty clearly teach that we are going to suffer and that the church has been suffering. We also looked at a specific word that is used in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're going to look at that whole passage a little more closely tonight, this word that talks about meeting. Because, again, some of the folks that adhere to the return of Jesus Christ being in two parts say, well, if it isn't in two parts, why are there believers on earth who are taken up to meet the Lord in the air if he's just going to come back down to earth? That doesn't seem to make any sense. It makes more sense that that first time that Jesus comes, the believers are taken up to meet the Lord in the air, and then they go back to heaven. Well, the word that Paul uses there is this word, apentasis. And what it actually means is exactly what folks who are adhering to a single return of Jesus Christ are saying, which is, it's the idea of going out to meet someone who is arriving. So when the Apostle Paul was making his way to Rome, it actually says that some of the believers in Rome went out to meet him, and then all of them went back into the city together. So Paul was on his way to Rome, some of the folks who were in Rome went out to meet him, and then they went back into Rome together. It's also a word that's used in Matthew 24 in the parable, excuse me, Matthew 25 in the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom. Again, the virgins are waiting. When the bridegroom arrives, they go out to meet him, and then the virgins and the bridegroom all go into the wedding feast together. And in fact, if we look at how this word is used outside of the Bible, it actually is specifically used for a delegation to meet a dignitary arriving in a city. So actually, that word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4 seems to indicate that when Jesus comes and the believers who are on earth are taken up to meet him in the air, that then they continue to make their way back down to earth. Um, another thing we talked about is that the return of Jesus Christ can be seen both as Jesus coming with his saints and Jesus coming for his saints. Because again, sometimes the folks who adhere to a two-part say, well, the first time he comes, he comes for his saints. And then the second time he comes, he comes with his saints. But particularly tonight, what? First Thessalonians 4 passage in greater detail, we're going to see it's actually both. We're going to see that what, what Paul seems to be saying is that those believers who have died and are already in the presence of the Lord, they come with him at his return. And those believers who are still alive on the planet when Jesus Christ returns, he is coming for them. Okay? So that's a very, very quick review of some of the bigger points that we looked at last time. What we ended with and read fairly quickly, I want to just read again and take a little more time. And this is a passage that we find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. 
And let's just read that together. It says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So we see here, obviously, Paul is talking about the return of Jesus Christ. We look at verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Then in verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his body, uh, in his, excuse me, in his holy people, and to be marveled at among those who have believed. So clearly Paul is looking to the future and looking to the return of Jesus. Now again, if you take the return of Jesus Christ to be in two parts, what happens at least to some extent is when he comes the first time, all of the believers who are on earth are taken up to meet him and then return back to heaven. So they receive their relief. They begin to enjoy the end of their time of suffering on earth. All believers who are alive on the planet when Jesus comes begin to enjoy their relief. Then when he comes back a second time, that's when he actually punishes the unbelievers on earth. So those who adhere to a two-part return of Jesus, they see these two things as being separate because the relief for believers begins at the rapture, and the punishment of the wicked begins when he returns a second time. But from what Paul tells us here is that the punishment of the wicked and the relief of believers is actually going to happen at the same time. So let's go back now and look a little bit more carefully at the first two verses, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. So in other words, he is talking about the punishment of the wicked. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And the context of this is fleshed out in verse 8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. So this isn't just momentary trouble from God or slight difficulties in this life because of their sinfulness. This is the ultimate punishment. So verse 6, this is what Paul is talking about. And, verse 7, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. So Paul is now including himself along with all believers that at this moment when those who are troubling believers are punished, 
those who be are in troubled or who obviously are in Christ, they will experience relief. And then the second part of verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. So again, it seems that the most straightforward and clear way of reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, particularly verses 6 and 7, is that the punishment of the wicked and the relief of the righteous occurs at the same time. Occurs at that moment when Jesus Christ returns. And so this is probably one of the strongest passages in the New Testament that indicates the return of Jesus Christ is not in two parts, but in fact it is a single event. When Jesus Christ returns, those who have been troubling the righteous, obviously the wicked, those who don't know God, they will begin to experience the eternal punishment of God. And believers who have been suffering, they will begin to experience their relief from that suffering. Okay? So, all of this to say, to me, as we look at the New Testament, and as we look at specifically some of the passages that we have together, it seems that the New Testament is more likely indicating that the return of Jesus Christ is in one part rather than being in two parts. And so as we have that incredible hope of the return of Jesus Christ, we probably need to start thinking of it more as a single event rather than an event that is separated into two parts and separated by a period of, of years, whether it's three and a half or seven years. But again, at the end of the day, more than anything else, we are looking for the return of Jesus Christ. We are excited about that amazing event that's going to happen. And as believers, we can have genuine fellowship one with another, even if we disagree on the precise nature of that return in terms of it being two parts or one part. Now, what we're going to do next is move on from this, so I'm going to pause here just to see if there are any comments or questions about this before we move on to something that is much less controversial and a little bit different than the discussion we've been having tonight and two weeks ago. So any, any comments or any questions about this? Yes, please, Karen. This isn't really about what you've just gone over because I think you made it really plain. But something that's always sort of confused me was the fact that it seemed more like a three-part thing if you add the Millennial Kingdom into that. And I know you'll probably be getting to that at some point, but it just, I just wasn't sure where that fit in and if you had just a moment to address that quickly in a sort of a summary statement. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just draw sort of a basic timeline. So what Karen is talking about is, okay, the initial return of Jesus Christ, if you're breaking it up into more than one event, is referred to as the rapture. 
So we'll just kind of draw that like this. So Jesus comes part of the way to earth. Believers are raptured to meet him in the air. And then he and the believers return back to heaven. Then there is a period of time. Again, some say seven years. Some say three and a half years. But then Jesus Christ returns and I'll put the lightning bolt, because remember we said that, read that when Jesus was describing this in one place, it's, it's obvious for the whole world to see. He says as lightning, you know, flashes in the east and is seen in the west, or something along those lines, that's a paraphrase, so will be the return of the Son of Man. So what Karen is saying, you know, this is the, the first part, this is the second part, but then what most would argue is that then comes the millennium. So then there is a thousand years. But if you believe this thousand years to be coming after these two events, there is one more final rebellion that is described in Revelation chapter 20. So there's one more time that Jesus has to again deal with the wicked on earth and bring about final judgment. So, as far as I understand, there are some that believe Jesus established his millennial reign on earth. So, it isn't so much a third coming. But it is sort of a third event where Jesus one more time has to bring about the significant work to rid the earth of evil once and for all. So, I think that's what you were talking about in terms of the three. So, the rapture the second part of the second coming, and then the end of the millennium. So we've made passing reference to the millennium, and probably in two weeks we're going to start to dive into this a lot more. Um, if you think this is disagreed upon by the believing church, the thousand years is, is equally as disagreed upon. There are three major approaches within the evangelical church as to how to understand the millennium. All of these come under the category of premillennialism because these events all occur before the millennium. There are those who are postmillennial who believe these events happen at the end of the millennium. And then there is a third category wrongly named amillennial, because a means no or not. Amillennialists absolutely believe there is a millennium. They simply believe the millennium is the entirety of the church age. But yeah, again, the most common teaching within the evangelical church in America is this scheme. The rapture being the first event, the second coming of Christ being the second event, the establishment of the millennium, and then the final judgment against evil at the end of the millennium. So that's the three parts that you think of. But as far as I know, I don't believe that most of the premillennials believe that Jesus is actually ruling over earth during this thousand years from heaven. I think that they actually believe that he establishes his reign on earth well, he himself is on earth. So this is not really a coming, I don't think. But 
It's been a while since I've done a deep dive into all of this. And so the purpose of this class is not to become experts in all the millennial positions or experts in all of the different, you know, because I am not. I am not by any stretch of the imagination. I am simply trying to get us, first and foremost, to be able to latch on to what the scriptures clearly teach about these things. And to remind us that so much of what scripture teaches about the return of Jesus is absolutely clear, is beyond any you know, discussion or debate or disagreement amongst believers. There are aspects of it, of course, that there is disagreement on. But before we started to look at the nature of the return of Christ, is it a single event or a two-part event, almost everything that we were talking about for all of those weeks and months that we were doing it, the believing church isn't in, in disagreement over any of that. So what we are starting to do now, but we're about to end, at least momentarily, is kind of diving into the stuff that the believing church is in disagreement on. And so what I believe is that, you know, we should definitely touch these things. But it's not my heart for this study that we're doing here on Wednesday nights for us to become an expert in the, the pre-mills and the post-mills and the ah-mills and the pre-trib pre-mills and the mid-trib pre-mills and the post-trib pre-mills. You can do that. I mean, if you want to, you can do that. When I was in college, a friend of mine had a book. It was about eight or 900 pages. And it was actually divided into four or five parts. And each part was a, literally a book unto itself written by someone in each of these different camps. So there was one book written by a pre-trip, pre-mill. There was one bill, book written by a post-mill. You can do that if you want. There was a time where I did sort of that deep dive. That's been decades ago. And so my point or purpose or hope in our time together on Wednesdays is not for us to become experts in these things. As much as we can, though, to look at Scripture and do the best we can to try to make the best sense of Scripture that we can. And there is a place. Absolutely. We've said it. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, mentions the millennium. But as we said, those are the only verses in the entire Bible that mention the millennium. Those six verses. And I believe that it's only mentioned three times in those verses. So, on the grand scheme of things, do we want to spend countless, countless hours discussing the millennium? Again, I don't think so. There is a place for it, absolutely, because it's something that Scripture mentions. But do I want us on Wednesday night to spend three months talking about the millennium? No, absolutely not. In fact, to be honest with you, in the past when I've taught eschatology, I've never even gotten to the millennium. Because there's so much, so much that can be covered without even touching on this. Because there's just so much that the scripture has to say about the return of Jesus Christ. And so we will get to it, because I believe there is value in looking at it. But again, I'm not going to try to convince you. I'm going to tell you what I believe the New Testament teaches. But you are free to study the scriptures, to be a Berean, and search the scriptures for yourself and to decide. Just like I'm saying here, my goal is not to have living word be in lockstep union, unity that we all believe the return of Jesus Christ is a single event. Now, if that happens, that's fine. 
But if there's a lot of folks at Living Word that think, ah, no, I think there's still a rapture before, that's fine too. All I want us to consider is because most of us, I think, myself included years ago, this was just kind of assumed because this is what most of the evangelical church in America teaches. This is probably almost all that you've been exposed to. So all I'm trying to do on these nights as we look at this aspect of eschatology is just to have us take, try to take a fresh look at Scripture and to say, well, actually, does the New Testament seem to indicate that the return of Jesus Christ might be a single event and not a divided event? That's all I'm getting at, okay? But thank you for bringing that up, Karen. And we will get to the millennium probably, probably next week or in two weeks when we meet again. But any other comments or questions about this part of the return of Jesus Christ? Yeah, Ted. Um, I was sort of fixated on the, the verse in Second uh, Thessalonians 1 and where he talks about that Jesus is coming to be glorified in his saints on that day <laughs> and marveled at among those who believed. And I think w when we think of Jesus returning, we, we, we sort of tend to think, at least I tend to think, it's going to be a big shock for unbelievers, you know, and they're going to say, wow, you know, I was wrong all this time, and Jesus really is true. But what, what Paul's saying here is he's going to be marveled at among those who have believed. Like, you know, Jesus is so marvelous. I think every day we should be <laughs> amazed at how marvelous he is. But when, when he appears and, 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 uh, and we see him as he really is, I don't, I don't think we even have a conception right now of how, of how marvelous that's going to be. You know, it just <laughs> it gives you it gives you such a thrill and such a hope as you look forward to that day that, boy, you know, a lot of the things I'm worried about now are going to fade away. And I'm just going to be marveling at the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. And again, you know, here's an excellent point that Ted is bringing up that nobody who loves Jesus is in disagreement over. You know, when we look at the top of that sheet, the return of Jesus Christ is personal, it's visible, and it's glorious. It's absolutely glorious. No one disagrees over that. No one disagrees that when Jesus Christ comes again, those things are absolutely true. So yeah, the glory of the return of Christ, it's, yeah, when we experience it, it will be unlike anything we've ever experienced before. So thank you for highlighting that phrase in, in 2 Thessalonians 1.10. But anything else before we move on here? Any other comments or questions from folks on Zoom? No hands up? Did you cut them off, Carl? Yes, I did. So what we're going to do next is specifically focus on the resurrection of the body. And Carl, did you see that I emailed these to you? Or did you have them from before? Great. So this is now jumping to a new sheet. I realized we spent a, a couple of sessions on that last sheet. But we're now jumping to the sheet that says the return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the body. Okay? So we've been talking about different aspects of the return of Jesus. And one of the glorious aspects, one of the marveling aspects of when Jesus Christ returns is this idea of the resurrection of the body. And we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight 
talking about this. Now remember, when we opened our time in eschatology, I think, gosh, did we start in September? <laughs> we were thinking <coughs> maybe we'd be done by Thanksgiving. So we, we missed that by a couple of weeks. But we talked about how God has not chosen to reveal all truth to his people from the very, very, very beginning. We talked about this idea of progressive revelation. God has revealed himself to his people all of the time, but has increased the amount of revelation as we work through redemptive history. So Adam understood some things about God, but Abraham understood more, and Moses understood more, and David understood more. And then as the prophets gave voice to what the Spirit was inspiring them to speak, subsequent generations understood more. There was a progress in the amount of information and the amount of understanding that God's people had about God. So this is called progressive revelation. So remember, we talked about this specifically when we were talking about death. We said that believers in the Old Testament absolutely understood that when they died physically, they did not cease to exist. So we spent some time talking about this Old Testament concept of Sheol and how there's really no great English translation for that. It simply was the firm conviction they had that when they died physically, they did not cease to exist. They continued to exist. But this idea of a bodily resurrection, for the most part, is not something that is revealed in its fullness on the pages of the Old Testament. There's a passage in Job that makes reference to this. But the one that we're going to start with is actually found at the end of the book of Daniel. The end of the book of Daniel. This on the sheet is Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now, remember, in terms of Old Testament timeline, Daniel is fairly late. Daniel, remember, is taken into Babylonian captivity probably about the year 609, and prophesized throughout the 6th century B.C., so a lot of the 500s, uh, well into the, the latter part of the 5th century. Remember, as you're, you're going in B.C., numbers get smaller as you work your way through time. So Daniel is not quite the close of Old Testament revelation, but he's fairly close to it. After Daniel, you're going to have Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, you're going to have Malachi, Haggai, and Zechariah, and Chronicles probably came after Daniel as well. But Daniel is fairly late. And what Daniel is told in the beginning of chapter 12 is pretty amazing for Old Testament understanding. So Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It says, At that time Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. 
multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Daniel is being told of an event in the future. And without trying to unpack the significance of Michael and the other things, what we want to look at is specifically found in verse 2 and 3. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth. So this is clearly a reference to what God declared in Genesis. I created you from the dust of the earth, and when you die to the dust of the earth, you will return. So Daniel chapter 12, specifically here verse 2, this idea that those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth, it's a reference to what happens to people's bodies when they die. They return to the dust of the earth. Again, this is clearly building on what God said in Genesis when he was cursing Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, God is speaking to Adam. It says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For you, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. That's Genesis 3.19. So again, this is not saying that the Old Testament believer thought their spirit or their soul went into the dust of the earth. Remember, they clearly understood that they continued to exist in this realm of Sheol. So what Daniel is making reference to is not the concept of life after death within the realm of Sheol, but is talking about where their bodies had gone, sleeping in the dust of the earth. And again, we will see in the New Testament as well that sleep is oftentimes a euphemism for death. In fact, we will see that Paul frequently, when talking about the return of Jesus Christ, uses the term sleep to describe physical death. So what happens, according to Daniel chapter 12 too? What happens to those who are asleep in the dust of the earth at this future point that Daniel is being described, or that is being described to Daniel? It says, they will awake. So those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth, they will awake. So here is an incredibly poetical and, and rare reference to a bodily resurrection. They will awake. Now it's interesting, because again, there is a distinction. Some will awake to everlasting life. Others will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. So those who are asleep in the dust of the earth, at some future time, they will awake. And some will enjoy everlasting life. 
and others will enjoy, well, not enjoy, experience. experience, thank you, Ted, everlasting contempt. And again, verse 3 then expands this first category. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Daniel is given this unbelievable prophetic glimpse into that future moment in time where those who are asleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And there will be two very, very, very different destinies for them. Some will awake to experience everlasting life. Some will awake to experience everlasting contempt. But there it is. There is the seed of the concept of the resurrection of the body within, excuse me, within the teaching of the Old Testament. Any comments or questions about that before we jump to the next passage? So would someone here or someone on Zoom please read the next on the sheet, John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29. John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29. Dave, I had a question. Yeah. Um, you you said um, everlasting contempt. Why isn't it not called everlasting um, death or versus contempt? I'm sorry, you're saying why is it referred to as shame as, and everlasting contempt? Yes, versus death. Yeah, I mean, again, it's not uncommon at all for the scriptures to pose life and death opposite from each other. You know, why, why the Lord specifically chose to oppose life with shame and contempt, I'm not sure. But certainly, it, 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 it speaks to just the disgrace of that eternal punishment. And certainly, you know, part of this everlasting life implied in this verse is that it's free from shame. It's free from condemnation. It's free from that being despised or abhorrence. Another translation, everlasting abhorrence. Um, we haven't, <coughs> excuse me, we haven't talked about hell and, or Gehenna in depth, but there is that concept that there is a, an abhorrence to it as the wicked are eternally punished. And so I think that's kind of what this verse in Daniel is getting at. Um, I'm not sure when the first time this concept of everlasting death is used, um, but here, yeah, like you're saying, it might be what we would expect, but other than just Daniel giving us another aspect of eternal punishment and describing it as shame and everlasting contempt, I'm not sure I can answer that question much more than that, but thank you for bringing that up. Um, thank you. But I think, I think at the end of Isaiah when Isaiah is talking about the flame that doesn't get quenched, doesn't he, doesn't he use a similar phrase there, Ted? Do you remember that? But does he also use that concept of abhorrence 
or not. Well, it just says, the, la- the last verse of the book of Isaiah, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So again, Flora, that sort of idea of being loathed, being contemptible, and, and certainly what Isaiah is getting at is that concept of eternal punishment. It isn't just you know, physically dead bodies because the fire is not quenched, the worm doesn't die, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So I think that's similar sort of idea. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that helps sort of answer the question or, or not. Well, th- thank you. Yes, it does. Yeah, of course. So does someone have for us John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29? Karen, thank you. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Okay. So Jesus here, again, is saying that an hour is coming. Now, it's interesting because a few verses earlier, Jesus says a time is coming or an hour is coming and has now come. So in other words, he's speaking of something that was future for the Old Testament believers. Remember way back when we talked about realized eschatology and future eschatology. Hopefully we can use those phrases now and have some understanding. An hour is coming and has now come. That is realized eschatology. Things that were promised in the Old Testament that are now being fulfilled because the Son of God is on planet Earth. But now the verses that Karen read, and an hour is coming, future eschatology. Things that have yet to be realized. Remember, for the Old Testament... All of these things were future. But now we are living in the age of fulfillment. We are living in the end of the ages. We are living in the time of the fulfillment of these things. So the few verses before, an hour is coming and has now come, realized eschatology. But what Jesus is saying in the verses that Karen read, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming, future. But in that coming time, what is going to happen? What does Jesus say? In that time that is future, in a time that is coming, what will happen? Jesus is coming. <laughs> Again. Everyone, Ephraim doesn't have the mic. But everyone who is in the grave will hear his voice. Now, when Jesus is talking, who is the he or his that he is referring to? The Son of Man himself. So everyone in the grave at some point in the future is going to hear the voice of Jesus. The voice of the Son of Man. At some point in the future, everyone in the grave is going to hear the voice of Jesus. Again, this idea of grave, very, very similar to 
Daniel talking about those who are asleep in the dust of the earth. Those who are asleep in the dust of the earth, at some moment in the future, what's going to happen? They are going to awake. Jesus, John chapter 5, at some point in the future, all those who are in the grave, they're going to hear the voice of Jesus. And when they hear the voice of Jesus, what's going to happen? They're going to rise. They're going to come out. They're going to arise. And again, to the same fate or the same destiny. Everyone in the grave, are they going to experience the same outcome? No. What does Jesus say? Those will receive condemnation. So those who have done evil will receive condemnation. condemnation. And what about the first group? Those who have done good? Resurrection of life. Will receive life. These are not trick questions. <laughs> so... Again, sometimes what we think is that only believers are going to be resurrected. No. Daniel clearly says multitudes will be resurrected and have two very different experiences. Everlasting life, shame, and everlasting contempt. Jesus, everyone in the grave, Everyone in the grave is going to hear his voice. Sounds similar to everyone's going to see his return like lightning. This is something that not a single person of humanity is going to be able to escape. Everyone will hear his voice. Some will rise to experience life, those who have done good. Some will rise to experience condemnation, those who have done evil. So the resurrection of the body is not something that only believers experience. And Jesus is simply reinforcing what was showed to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. Okay? Is this making sense? Again, this is something that's in the future. This is something that's in the future. And it's important for us to recognize that the people in Scripture who died and were raised to life, that's different than what's being talked about here. So sometimes what is used as a term to describe people in Scripture who died and were raised to life, instead of using the word resurrection to avoid this confusion, sometimes the word that's used is resuscitation. Now, a lot of us don't like, is that how you spell that word, Ted? Two S's? Not C. R-E-S-U-S-I-T-A-T-I-O-N. Is that right, Ted? Anyways. Okay, Resu resuscitate. Anyways, 
C? So there was a C there, uh, just an S as well. Now, a lot of us, when we see or hear the word resuscitation, we, we think of someone who didn't really die, but they're brought back to life because they were close to death. But from a theological standpoint, when we use the word resuscitation in distinction from resurrection, what we mean is someone that was you know, in the grave or dead, was brought back to life, but then died again. So Lazarus, great example. Jesus is standing at the grave of Lazarus. Lazarus hears his voice. I mean, so similar to what Jesus is saying in John chapter 5. You know, Lazarus says, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and he comes out. So he was dead, he was in the grave, he heard the voice of Jesus, he was brought back to life, but Lazarus is not alive on planet Earth right now. He died again. So that's why we refer to those events as resuscitations. Because resurrection, what Jesus is talking about, is those in the grave hear my voice and it's life and condemnation that doesn't end. That's the point that Daniel makes. Everlasting life, everlasting contempt. So that's the difference. So when we're talking about these events, that's why we sometimes refer to the resurrection of the body as opposed to the accounts of people being brought back to life in Scripture, but then dying again. You know, Elijah raised someone from the dead. Elisha raised someone from the dead, and then Elisha's bones raised someone from the dead. But obviously those people were not resurrected in this sense. They were resuscitated because they were really dead. They were really brought back to life, but then they died again. They did not experience everlasting life in a body. Okay? So John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29 very similar to the declaration of Daniel 12. We will not read Acts 24, 14, and 15. You can look that up on your own, but the Apostle Paul is making a defense, and he says basically the same thing, that one of the great hopes that the Jews had, the Jews who were following the Scriptures, one of the great hopes they had was a coming resurrection. A coming resurrection. So that's what is echoed in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. But let's jump to, oh yeah, please. Um, yes, so is the idea here that, I mean, obviously many believers' bodies have completely disintegrated, burned at the stake, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, is the idea that, you know, this new body will be reconstituted or that it's a new body? Do you know what I mean? That's uh, created in the same way that, or, or in just is newly created. Yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> I think, Camille, it's actually both. You know, I was looking over a passage today in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is making the comparison between this body and the resurrection body with a seed and a plant, 
And again, the, 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 the comments that I was reading about it were really profound because basically what was being emphasized is that there is a disconnect between the seed and the plant, but there is clearly a connection between the seed and the plant. So in other words, you know, if you look at an apple seed, an apple seed doesn't really look like an apple tree. But if you plant an apple seed in the ground, an apple tree appears. So it, there's both a discontinuity. An apple seed doesn't really look like an apple tree, but there is a continuity because that apple seed actually produces the apple tree. So again, in terms of like, you know, if we're getting down to like the atoms, I mean, you know, because now we have the scientific, you know, ability to talk about that, you know, the atoms of an individual. You know, so let's say someone, you know, who died 3,000 years ago, you know, well, where are their atoms? Well, you know, someone, someone could give us an answer to that. So I think, Camille, though, from a biblical perspective, what, what I think the scriptures would say is there's absolutely a continuity. In other words, you know, it was your body when you died, and it will be you and your body when you experience the resurrection. So there will be a continuity, but there also will be a completely different reality. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's a helpful way of thinking of it, but certainly, yes, yeah, we think of how people have died and how long bodies have been in the ground and bodies that have been burned in fire and bodies that have been lost at sea and, and all those sorts of things. We can think, you know, obviously at a pretty advanced, you know, scientific level, what actually happens to the atoms that make up a material body given enough time in the ground. And so, you know, scripture obviously doesn't do that deep dive, but this idea that the bodies are still here. Even in the Old Testament, when a person died, you know, there was that understanding that, yeah, okay, the body went into the ground, but that person continued to exist somewhere else. That person continued to exist in Sheol. So what this is getting at now is that there is, in the future, a raising of a body. A body that went into a ground, a physical body that died, so there is some continuity there, but it's a new body. It's an eternal body. So there is some discontinuity there as well. So I think the scriptures would teach us that it's both. There is a connection. It's not creation out of, of nothing, but there certainly is an incredibly new aspect of that resurrection body. Does that kind of help to answer that, Camille? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah, and I think, I think the passage is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, like, but I think it's before that. I think it's like 35 to 38, but it's, it's anyway, it's where Paul is making the comparison between a seed and a plant, and this body and the resurrection body. And he's basically, you know, saying that, yeah, there is a connection because that apple seed produces an apple tree, but there's a pretty big difference because an apple seed doesn't look like an apple tree. And so anyways, I can't remember, but I was reading someone commenting on those verses. I, this is rough, but someone can look it up to say if that's for sure. But I was like, yeah, that really captures it. So there is a connection, but there is a newness as well. So, you know, like one way of thinking of it is, you know, when you die and go to be with the Lord, we've talked about that. 
You know, if we, as believers in Christ, die physically, we go to be with the Lord. That's still us. I mean, it's still us. And when we receive our resurrection body, it will still be us. You're not going to be not you. Because that's the whole idea of redemption. The idea of redemption is not that God completely obliterates us and then out of nothing creates something that's not connected to us at all. No, there is that connection. God redeems us. That's why even, you know, the glory that's coming is called the new heavens and the new earth. Even though God is going to destroy this earth, judge this earth with fire, Peter tells us, the new heavens and new earth, there's still going to be a connection between them. It's the redemption of creation. So when we experience this this glorious bodily resurrection, there absolutely will be a connection with who we are right now. Because God absolutely is determined to redeem. He doesn't obliterate us and completely create out of nothing a new us. It's still us. But there is a disconnect as well because it's so much more glorious than what we have right now. So, yeah, Libby, please, just grab the mic so folks on Zoom can hear you. Is that, is that the right passage? Thank you. So 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 38, that's where Paul uses this idea of seed and, and plant. It's a great passage. It's a great passage. Um, well, yeah, I was just thinking, like, about, oh, there, there we go. Um, like, resurrection bodies, just the idea of, like, that they can't get sick, uh, and they're, they can't, we can't get injured, um, and just the idea, like, everything that our bodies now were meant to be, uh, like, even just, like, being, yeah, uh, like, in peak physical physical condition now is just, I think, maybe even a shadow of what it, if just imagining of, like, oh, my resurrection body, like, I could run, like, how far could I run and, like, just keep running? <laughs> um, yeah, and then just, like, thinking about... Yeah, just the phys- physical capabilities that everyone will have. Like, there will be no limitation. Um, and I, I'm just I don't know, curious about, like, maybe when you were talking about the seed and the plant, like, the just the shadow that of the bodies that we have uh, compared to the resurrection bodies we'll receive. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, no, 100%. Because what part of what Scripture is inviting us to consider is life in a body without all of the ramifications of sin. You know, the ultimate ramification of sin is death. But decay and sickness and injury, those are all forms of death short of death itself. You know, in the new heavens and the new earth, There's going to be no mold. There's going to be no mildew. There's going to be no, you know, how does Isaiah describe it? You know, cobras are not going to be poisonous. And lions are not going to be eating, you know, flesh. They're going to be eating straw. And wolves and goats are going to be hanging out together and they're going to be best friends. So, I mean, you know, Isaiah is inviting us to consider a creation that is absolutely material and physical and natural without any of the negative impact of sin. So, you know, when you start to think about that, you're like, you know, mosquitoes won't bite. 
and poison ivy won't be poisonous, and there will be no food allergies, and you know, all these things that we think about. You know, it's, it's so crazy because the only material world we've ever known is this one, and this material world is so stained by sin. You know, to try to conceptualize what Libby was doing for us, you know, to try to begin to conceptualize, you know, what, what is a new heavens and a new earth with people having physical bodies without any of the negative consequences of sin. It's, well, it's glorious. I mean, that's why, you know, that passage, a couple of those passages in Isaiah where there's just absolute harmony within the animal kingdom. It's just, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. But that idea of, our body's not growing sick, our body's not growing weary, our body's not breaking down. You know, we looked at on Saturday, that passage, you know, outwardly we are wasting away. You know, as long as we are consigned to this reality and this creation, our bodies will break down. You know, despite what Thor tries to tell us in that, that Disney special. I, I was really interested in, in this thing that, that I, what's, what's Thor's name? What's this actor's name? Anyways. Yeah, he's got this, this Disney thing where he's trying to do all these crazy things. But then I looked at the, the capsules, and it's all like, you know, trying to live longer or trying to, like, become immortal. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to watch that rubbish. I mean, it's, it's garbage. I, so anyways, maybe it's not as bad as the squibs are. But it's like, no, in this life, it doesn't matter. You know, if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, if you're, you know, a marathon woman, you know, you're going to die. You're, you're physically, your body is going to break down. You can't beat the sting of death apart from Christ. You know, all of the great nutrition, all of the physical training that we should do. I mean, we should take good care of the bodies God has given us. But still, no matter how good we care, how well we care for these bodies, they're going to break down. But what's coming is a body that won't break down. And what's coming is a creation that is not going to have decay, and collapse, and all of that. That's why Paul says in Romans, all of creation is longing for the sons of God to be revealed. All of creation is longing for the sons of God to be revealed. You know, looking at Pablo here, houses won't fall apart. Houses won't break down. You know, the best, best house that Pablo and his dad can build, eventually it's going to fall apart. <laughs> but... In the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be any building collapse. There won't be any, you know, condemning buildings because they're no longer safe. I mean, so as we start to think about it, it's just, it's crazy how literally every aspect of creation has been tainted and corrupted by sin. And in the new heavens and new earth, every aspect of creation will be completely free of all of that negative consequence. So... Exactly. Yeah, child's playing over the hole of a, of a poisonous cobra or asp, depending on your translation, and mom's not worried because that cobra's no longer poisonous. So, so Karen Runkle, if you're listening, you're not scared of snakes anymore. Well, my wife doesn't like snakes either, so Seema as well. Yeah, please. I was thinking in the beginning with Adam and Eve was created, God created, and the intention it was for, it was, when they committed sin, that's when they start the, the trouble, but it was the body. God created Adam and Eve, 
and person. He created Eve and, and Adam. And uh, one day they committed sin, everything changed. And uh, that's given the ideas and uh, what Levi was asking. Uh, I just going back to that part in the beginning. There was a body that got created. Uh, forever. forever, yeah. And, uh, and I say, why uh, Adam and Eve committed sin? And then I say, <laughs> because it, but uh, that, uh, that in the beginning they say that. Yeah. And uh, because of, this, of, the, of the apple, the sin, or the snake, everything complicated. Yeah. But we, we have to go through the whole process. Yeah. No, and the point you're bringing up, Ephraim, is such a good one. You know, it's, it's a strong reminder to us that the body is not sinful. You know, when God created, it was good and it was very good, and humans had bodies. So, you know, like, sometimes when we read Paul, and when Paul uses the word flesh, we think of flesh as our physical body. Now, of course, sometimes the word flesh can mean a physical body. So there are times that in both the Old and the New Testament, a word, obviously a different word, but a word can be used that is translated flesh that means a physical body. But oftentimes when Paul is using the word flesh, he's putting it in contrast to the spirit. And so then, of course, even more so we think, you know, material, immaterial. But that's not what Paul is getting at at all. Because then what that starts to lead us to believe is, oh, the body is sinful. The physical reality is sinful. And that's part of what is a misconception. Because as Ephraim said, when God created Adam and Eve, they had physical bodies. And their bodies were good. Their bodies were unaffected by sin. So when Paul is using flesh in contrast to the spirit, what he's actually talking about is not our material component. He's talking about everything in us that is opposed to God. Everything in us that is influenced by sin. So the NIV translated this sinful nature. And again, I think, I think in terms of understanding what Paul meant by flesh, they made a good choice. But in terms of actually translating the word that Paul used, not so much. Paul used the word flesh. But the idea was not material, but that component of our, our being that is opposed to God, that rebels against God, that desires what is against God and sinful. And, of course, the Greeks, which came along, you know, a couple of centuries before Jesus, they really disparaged the body. And so they basically said the, the more that you can remove yourself from your physical being, you know, the more close to perfection you are. And that started to leak in, unfortunately, to some Christian theology. And so even today, there is sort of a, a denigration of the body, a denigration of what is physical. And that is not at all the heart of God. Because as we're seeing, well, we haven't gotten to too many passages yet, but as we're seeing, you know, the resurrection of the body is such a central part of our future hope. So if a physical body is, is, is you know, inferior or, or unnecessary or secondary or sinful, you know, why is there so much emphasis put on this incredible hope of the resurrection of the body? It's a reminder that God is not opposed to what is material. He made it. Amen. He made our spiritual component. He made our 
physical component. And again, remember, they were never intended to be separated. They were never intended to be separated. You know, what is death? Death is separation. So physical death is a separation of our physical being from our spiritual being. But that's not what God intended. So it isn't just enough that when we die and are separated from our body that we go to be with Jesus. That's great. Of course it is. As Paul said, it's better by far. Jesus calls it paradise. But it's not the end. Because right now, everyone who has died and in the presence of Jesus, they do not have a physical body. Elliot Blake does not have a physical body. So he's still waiting. Something better even than what he's experiencing right now is coming. As hard as that is to believe, as glorious as it is to be physically dead and in the presence of Jesus, as amazing as that is, something even better is coming. Because every believer who has died and is currently right now in the presence of Jesus, they don't have a physical body. And that physical body is coming. It's coming. And that's always what God intended. That's always what God intended. The most glorious aspect of the new heavens and the new earth, apart from Jesus himself, is us in new bodies. Mm. That's what's coming. And that's why the souls that are seen in Revelation 6 under the, the altar, they're saying to Jesus, how long? Now, they're asking how long until you avenge us. But part of that longing for how long, Lord, how long until you come again? And all the incredibly awesome things that we will marvel at, as Ted was highlighting in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, all the amazing things that we're going to marvel at that Jesus is and accomplishes, one of them is we get new bodies. So right now, Elliot is in the presence of the Lord and experiencing, you know, what, what can't be put into human words, but God's not done. Because one day Elliot's going to receive a new body. Okay? Amen. So thank you for bringing that up, Ephraim. It's so important for us to remember, God is not opposed to our physical bodies. He absolutely created them, and he will recreate them when Jesus comes again. So Philippians chapter 3 uh, verses 20 to 21. Let's look at that one next. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Is someone willing to read that for us? I have it right here. Go for it. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So, so much that Paul packs into these verses. So he starts out by saying, we are not really citizens of this world. We are not citizens of America or Colombia or Peru or Japan. We're not really citizens of this world. We're really citizens of heaven. Our true citizenship is in heaven. And because that's where our true citizenship is, we are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ from heaven. 
Remember, he was taken up to heaven, and the disciples were kind of looking up in amazement and probably a bit of confusion, and the angels said, hey, why are, you, why are you looking up here? The same way that Jesus was taken from you, he's going to return. Jesus is going to return to us from heaven. And we are eagerly awaiting that. Why? Because our citizenship is of heaven. We're not waiting for a savior from earth. You know, if we look to politics or military might or training or education or wealth, you know, if we're looking for anything to be a savior for us from this earth, we're looking in the wrong direction. Our savior is coming to us from heaven. Our savior is not coming to us from earth. He's not on earth in that way anymore. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, what's he going to do? When he comes again, he's going to transform our lowly bodies, our bodies that are wasting away, our bodies that get sick, our bodies that, you know, are ultimately mortal and decaying, he's going to transform those. And what are they going to become like? Him. Our bodies are going to become like his body. So the Apostle Paul is making clear that there is one who has been resurrected. There have been many resuscitated. There have been many who died and were brought back to life, but then died again. There is only one who has died and been brought back to life, never to die again. Jesus Christ is the only one who has been resurrected into a resurrection body. And remember, this is what the disciples experienced when they met the risen Christ. What did they think at first? Well, let's read Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. Luke chapter 24 Verses 36 to 43. When the disciples first saw the risen Christ, what did they think? They thought he was a ghost. They thought he was a ghost. So Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. Yeah, Ted, please. Uh, while they were tell, while they were they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, "Peace be to you." But they were startled and frightened, and thought that they were seeing a, go a spirit. And he said to them, "Why are you troubled? And why do your why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see for see, for your spirit does not have flesh and bones." as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while I still could, how many verses? To 43, yeah, okay. please. Um, and, um, and while they still could not believe it uh, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, 
have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled, broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So, again, somewhat comical, and maybe when we read that, we don't quite think in terms of this, but Jesus rose in a body. They thought he was a ghost. Uh, NASB translates spirit there. Probably ghost is a better understanding because a ghost is a disembodied spirit that's moving around on this planet. And that's what they thought he was. They recognized it was him, but they couldn't believe that he had a body. So they thought he was a ghost. So what does Jesus invite them to do? Touch me. I have flesh. I have bone. They're still sort of like amazed and startled and dumbfounded. So then he says, give me something to eat. And he eats a piece of broiled fish in their presence to show them that it is in fact him and he does in fact have a body. And until he comes again, he is the only one who will receive his resurrection body. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily Resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's sometimes why that phrase is used to emphasize that. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolute assurance that we will be raised as well. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 23. The Apostle Paul gets at this. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, obviously you've seen, we're referring to it a lot, and we'll get to some later verses in there in, in a minute. But it's an amazing chapter about resurrection, about the things we're talking about. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, remember, the concept of first fruits is an Old Testament concept. It's that first part of the harvest that comes in. And the great, great hope of the first fruits is that the rest of the harvest is coming. When that first fruit appears, you know, the farmer is rejoicing because now he is convinced that the rest of the harvest will come. Jesus is the first fruits of those who sleep. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died. He is the first to receive the resurrection body. But not just that, because he's the first fruits, he is God's assurance that the rest will be raised. And jumping down to verse 23, that's the point that Paul makes. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come. So the Apostle Paul there in really, really summary form is saying, Jesus has been raised from the dead, received a resurrection body. He is the first. Then when he comes again, the rest of believers will be raised. Now here, the Apostle Paul is just simply emphasizing our hope. But remember, the wicked dead are resurrected 
as well. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a body <coughs> is the absolute assurance we have that we will be resurrected in a body. Not when we die, but when he comes again. Our lowly bodies, corruptible and breakable, will become like his body. We have one example of a resurrection body. That's Jesus Christ. No one else has experienced that yet. Okay? The John 20, 24 to 29 passage, we won't read that. That's simply a, a parallel account in John where the risen Christ appears to his disciples. This is where Thomas puts his finger, or is invited at least, to put his finger in the hole in Jesus' hand, to put his hand in the hole in Jesus' side, and is strongly encouraged to stop doubting and to believe. And of course, Thomas falls down in worship and says, you know, my Lord and my God. But again, an, another passage where we are reminded that Jesus rose in a body. Okay? Now, we've kind of been circling it for a couple of weeks. I actually want to jump down to the 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 passage in the time that we have left. Because we've looked at different aspects of this, but we haven't actually read it in its entirety. So 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. And what we're going to see here is that Paul is really pulling together a lot of the different strands and strings that we have been looking at. So what we'll do is we'll read a verse or two and then pause to talk about it and, and work our way through this. So beginning in verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant. So again, such an incredibly powerful opening statement. God wants us to understand. Not everything. Some things are, you know, for him and him alone to know. But God wants us to understand. That's why Jesus came, to reveal the Father. That's why the scriptures have been preserved for us, so that we can know God. So Paul is just making an incredible declaration. God doesn't want us to be ignorant about the return of Jesus Christ. doesn't want us to be ignorant about the resurrection of the body. God actually wants us to understand these things. He wants us to know these things. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Well, right away now, when Paul uses that phrase, those who fall asleep, what is he talking about? People who have died. Remember when Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep, they're a little confused. They're like, well, if he's just sleeping, he's going to wake up again. Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm saying he's dead. Exactly. So Paul is talking to a church that's in a little bit of a crisis because some believers have died and Jesus has not come back. What we see kind of probably was the Thessalonian understanding was that Jesus was going to come back before any believers died. Now obviously that's not true. But that's probably what they were believing. So they were greatly concerned that some brothers and sisters in Christ had died and Jesus hadn't come back yet. So 
They were wondering, you know, what, what's going to happen? So this is what Paul is addressing. Picking it up in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So here is planet Earth. And here you are, well, not you, let's take some Thessalonian believers. They're awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. But he hasn't come yet. And some of them have died. So when they have died, what has happened? Well, their spirit or their soul, and we'll put it in dotted, goes to be with Jesus. But their body goes into the ground, into the grave, to sleep in the dust of the earth. That's what happens. Death, separation. So when the believer dies, whatever happens to their body, and as Camille said, a lot of different things happen to our bodies. We're cremated, we're put in a, a casket, we're lost at sea, whatever. Our bodies go back to the earth from which we came, but our spirit, or our soul, goes to be with Jesus. So that's what's happening right now. Elliot, his body was cremated, went back into the ground, using that biblical phrase, but he, without his body, is with Jesus. Okay? So, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So, when Jesus Christ comes again, those who are with him without bodies will come with him. That's what verse 14 says. Every believer who has died before the return of Jesus Christ, who is in the presence of the Lord, will come with him when he comes again. That's what verse 14 says. Picking up verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are still left till the coming of the Lord. So what does this tell us? That when Jesus comes again, there will be believers alive on planet earth. They will not all have been raptured up to heaven. There will still be believers alive on planet earth when Jesus comes again. That's what verse 15 tells us. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is making two very clear distinctions here. When Jesus comes again, there will be believers who have died, have left their bodies in the ground, and have gone to be with the Lord in spirit. But there will still be believers in their bodies alive on planet earth when Jesus comes with those who have died and left their bodies in the ground. And what he also says in verse 15 is that those who are alive on the planet are not going to precede those who have died. Well, precede in what way? Well, he hasn't said that yet. So now verse 16 for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Again, reinforcing 
This is not something hidden. This is not something missable. Paul is using these amazing words that, again, echo (coughs) Jesus' words. Nobody alive on planet Earth is going to miss the return of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, look, if someone tells you, hey, he already came and he's in that room, or he already came and he's over there, Jesus says, don't believe them. Because when I come, the whole world is going to know it. The whole world is going to know it. That's the language of verse 16. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and then what will happen? The dead in Christ will rise first. Well, where are the dead in Christ when Christ returns? They are coming with him. So what does it mean that they will rise? Their bodies that have been in the ground for one year or 2,000 years or 8,000 years, when Jesus Christ comes with those who have died and are in his presence, their bodies will be erased. That's one of the things that will happen when Jesus Christ comes again. Those who come with him, they will be raised first. The end of verse 16 The dead in Christ will rise first. Then, verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So those who are alive and still in their physical bodies on earth, they then will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. But after... The dead in Christ receive their resurrection bodies. Remember, those who are still alive will not precede those who have died. Those who have died will receive their resurrection bodies first. Then, those who are still alive on planet Earth will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. And remember, that word to meet means to go out and then come back with. So the idea here is that they're not going up to meet the Lord in the air and then go back up into heaven. They're going up to meet the Lord in the air and return to earth with him. Verse 18, therefore encourage each other with these words. You see, it's so, so practical. Hold on to this hope. Hold on to this encouragement. As discouraging and and awful and, 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 and disheartening as this life can be, hold on to this truth. Hold on to this truth, okay? Now, I know we're two minutes over time, but we've got to finish the story here. Quickly, quickly. 1 Corinthians 15. Because hopefully what you guys are seeing is there's a big problem. These guys have left behind their mortal, corruptible, fallible, decaying bodies. Whenever they died, they left their bodies in the grave. They received their resurrection bodies. But remember, those who are alive on planet Earth, when Jesus Christ comes, they're still in their fallible, corruptible, decaying bodies. So as they're being taken up to meet the Lord in the air, they've got a big problem because they're looking and they're like, wait a second, these guys have brand new resurrection bodies. We're still in our mortal, fallible, decayable bodies. Well, Paul reveals what happens 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and following. 
I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what is he talking about there? This body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about the flesh and blood of the resurrection body. He's talking about the flesh and blood that we are currently inhabiting. So he's saying very clearly that those who are still alive on earth when the Lord comes again, in those bodies they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. A body that gets sick, a body that decays, a body that wears out cannot inherit an imperishable kingdom. So, verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Again, when Paul says sleep, what does he mean? We will not all die. Some of us will be alive on planet Earth when Jesus comes again. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. Those who are coming with Christ, whose bodies are in the ground, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Who is the we? Those who are alive on planet Earth when Jesus Christ comes again. So as they are making their way, as we are making our way up into the air to meet the Lord, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our corruptible bodies are transformed into incorruptible bodies. And now we can inherit the kingdom. Yeah, what Ephraim just said. He said, it's amazing. It is. It's amazing. It is amazing. And in our resurrection bodies, we will inhabit a new heaven and a new earth with all of the glorious things and infinitely more that we were making reference to before. This is why, as good as it is to die, to depart, to go to be with Christ, that's a wonderful thing something so much better is still coming. Because this hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened yet. Not even for those people who are enjoying the perfect presence of Jesus Christ. It hasn't happened for them yet. And that's why when we talked about the intermediate state, we said, really, the New Testament doesn't talk a lot about the intermediate state. It doesn't talk a lot about what happens to believers who died before the return of Jesus Christ. What it much more strongly emphasizes is what happens to believers who die before the return of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ returns. Because this is what the entire cosmos is waiting for. Of course, it's a wonderful thing to die and leave this body and go to be with the Lord, but it's infinitely greater to experience the return of Jesus Christ. That's what the sons of, excuse me, that's what creation is longing for. Not for our personal death, but all of creation is longing, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Well, when will we be revealed? Not in our mortal corruptible bodies, not 
in our disembodied selves in the presence of the Lord. That's not when the glory of Christ is fully revealed in us. The glory of Christ is fully revealed in us when we receive our resurrection bodies. That's what creation is longing for. That's what we should be longing for. Okay? Hopefully, you see this here. Because my great, great hope is that I'm not just, you know, reading this stuff in. As we said at the beginning, we try hard not to do that. Hopefully, that's really what these passages are saying. But we are about ten minutes over time. I apologize for keeping you a little over. I am going to cut things off here. If you have a question, write it down. If you have a comment, write it down. Because, Lord willing, we're going to meet in two weeks on Wednesday, March the 1st. And what we will start with is reviewing what we talked about from these two passages and then take any comments or questions connected to these two passages. Okay? But I don't want to take any more time tonight because there are some of us here that have to drive home. I know the Zoom folks have a, an easy commute. So just write your question down, write your comment down, and Lord willing, we'll be here in two weeks and we'll begin with that discussion. Okay? okay? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, of course, we just want to thank you so much for giving us the opportunity tonight to consider the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you so much for even just a little bit of the glory that will take place when that happens that we've been able to look at tonight. Thank you that what your scriptures tell us is certainly sufficient and amazing, but not exhaustive. As Ted said, when we actually experience it, we will marvel nonetheless. We will marvel at, at what it will be like. It's, it's hard for us, Lord, to even consider, conceptualize what it will be like. Even as Libby was, was reminding us as well, as we consider a body without, without all of the frailties of this mortal body. But thank you, Lord, for putting this these things in Scripture. Thank you for preserving Scripture for us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to consider these things. And may we take great hope, great hope in the truth that you put in front of us. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is the first fruit. He's the first, but he's not the last. He is the promise that more is coming. And we thank you for that. For those of us who are here, we just ask, Lord, that you give us safety as we travel home. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here. Thank you for being on Zoom, folks. The Lord bless you all. And Lord willing, we will see you in two weeks, March the 1st. March.